Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today we're going to talk about commercial property, and commercial's been really highly sought after by property investors in the last little while. At least there's been a lot of interest. So we've got a commercial buyer's agent, Steve Polisi, who is a commercial property guru, a published author. Uh, he's the principal of uh, Polisi Property and Suburbanite, uh, and he is an absolute expert when it comes to commercial. He, he's shared some awesome information in this podcast around the key differences between residential and commercial, the risks involved. We tackle the, the vacancy elephant in the room. He talks about how to spot good growth markets and the key difference between doing the research around commercial compared to a residential property. I learned a lot from it myself and I'm sure you will as well. Here's Steve. Steve Polisi, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I've uh, watched you from afar. First time uh, caller, long time listener, as they say. Um, yeah, and, so, uh, so, so, so you're the one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the AVOs uh, in the post, I presume. <laughs> uh, Steve, for anyone that hasn't uh, come across you, can you start us off with who you are and what your specialty is? Okay, so I'm, I'm a commercial buyer's agent. So effectively the same as a residential buyer's agent, but generally acting in the commercial space. So do sourcing, due diligence, negotiations, um, hold people's hands through the whole purchasing process, help them with strategy as well because obviously commercial offers and things that residential do not. So just full end-to-end service in the property space but primarily in the commercial. Um, but, I, but I have worked in residential. Like I've purchased over 500 residential properties before and up to about 200 commercial. So I've got, got a, quite a few under my belt. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty good resume, and I've got to say, commercial property is very popular with investors at the moment, and and this uh, this podcast is quite infested with residential specialists, so it's nice to have a commercial guy on. Um, give us a bit of the the background of the young Steve. What was the the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, young car. Early years, I was just cartoon kind of stuff. Like, I love Simpsons, Ren and Stimpy, all those kind oh, yeah. of inappro- inappropriate cartoons. And then <laughs> as I got a bit older, I was just one of the rock kids, played guitar, listened to all those kind of Slipknot, Metallica, uh, even stuff like Green Day and all that stuff. Stuff Just, just band. Literally, my walls were like filled with this band posters. Um, and then since then, now I've got um, clean, tidy walls. There is nothing on it. I, I don't have any stuff around my house that's not required. I'm very minimalist. Right, and I'm sure that we're going to dive into the reasons behind that <laughs> shortly. But w- what about property? How did you first get started in property and what was your first investment, Steve? Uh, first one was in 2012. Um, I bought in Western Suburbs property in Blacktown, if you know where that is. Mm. Um, it's just, just a low socioeconomic kind of area. I, I grew up kind of near there. I was in a suburb called Wentworthville and just, just timed it perfectly. In saying that, like I, I timed it, but I also did a bit of research six months and I knew that it had the, the usual fundamentals in quotation marks, like it had the train stations, the population growth, all that type of stuff. Um, and yeah, just bought a, bought a property there for, it was a two bedroom villa for 230 grand. And then in 12 months time, that was worth about 310. And I remember I was just a, an engineer at the time and I was earning 65 grand. And I'm just like, I've made $100,000 from signing a bit of paper and done absolutely nothing. And then I was just, yeah, I was, I was hooked from there. I was just like, why, why am I going to work? Why am I going to work 50 hour weeks when I can just sign bits of paper and make money? And thought it'd be that easy. But uh, as you know, there's a lot more work to it than that. 
That's um, I mean, that's pretty impressive because Blacktown actually topped topped the list or was close to the top of the list. It was one of those suburbs that absolutely rocketed along. So yeah, I mean, sure, there might have been a little bit of luck there, but to be specifically in that particular spot, you must have you must have had some inkling that it was going to move. Yeah, just again, like I was, oh, I can't remember. I was twenty four years old or whatever it was like. You do your little research, and I saw population growth. I knew the area, and I knew it had, like, a broad demographic. Like, there is just so many cultures there. It's just ridiculous. So I knew that there was lots of people migrating to the area. It was ridiculously affordable, right near train stations and shopping centres and things like that. So I knew it had that. But, like, now in terms of my analysis, I do days of research kind of thing on each area. That one was just a, oh, yeah, it looks pretty good. I'll I'll have a crack kind of thing. But it, it rented for 280 And like I said, I bought it for 230 So did yep. the sums and went, okay, this is costing me nothing to hold. Let's, let's have a crack. Yeah, well done. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Now, um, you mentioned engineering. So can you tell us at school, was that what you wanted to do? Was it a passion or were you chasing, you know, the high-earning uh, professions? Uh, not necessarily. Just to answer your question, I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> like I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever will. But I, I chose engineering. I, I was really good at mathematics. Like I got like fifth in the state in point at mathematics. I got a ninety nine point five high school mark. So I, I just went through the list and went, ah, oh, cool. I don't want to be a doctor. Don't like law, actuary maybe. Um, but then I thought engineering seemed the coolest kind of thing. Um, and I, I chose mechatronics because I wanted to design like robotic arms and stuff like that. Um, but back then I also thought that being smart and working hard meant you weren't really good money. And that was a bit of a, a culture shock a few years later, once I got into the industry. Um, and then, yeah, I, I just always loved maths and just cause you can argue with data as opposed to emotions. And, and that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm not an emotional guy at all. So now I, I, I still really like engineering, but you're just kind of limited unless you do something out of the box or start your own company. Yeah. You're pretty much capped like many industries. Well, I've got to say, like, I, if I wasn't intimidated by your resume before, now that I know you've – I didn't even know there was a four-unit mathematics, to be <laughs> honest. I, I dropped out of three-unit because it was, it was too aggressive. And, you know, I, I think I came fifth in my school in, like, math, in maths and society or whatever it was called. <laughs> oh, the gen- general maths or whatever it was called. Yeah, it was pretty ordinary. Uh, the, the next one below that, I think one of the questions in the HSC was what shape is a stop sign? So I was, I was near the bottom, but I mean, that's very, very impressive. And, and 99.5, you, you must have had sort of a sea of options available to you. Yeah, it was more just choose what degree I kind of wanted, but um, anyone can do that, even if you don't get the mark. Like I got plenty of friends that got a lower high school mark and they just they just do a year doing something else at university and work hard and then get into it. And I, I actually don't claim to be smart. Like I've got really smart friends. I'm smart at maths, but there's plenty of stuff I'm not smart at and you just got to know what your strengths and weaknesses are. Mm. I mean, it's it's hard to be honest. It's hard to stomach you saying I'm I'm not smart with a ninety nine point five UAI. But I mean, you've got a, you, you've got a point, right? You can't you can't be a specialist at everything. You've got to have some blind spots. I mean, unless you're going to tell me that you top the state in English as well. No, no, definitely not. English <laughs> is my weak my, my weak point actually. But I, I've got like I got some friends that are like on paper smarter than me, but just socially they're, they're actually quite quite silly. 
Yeah, right. That's interesting. I think there's not often a payoff between uh, being sort of socially inept and uh, and being a, a genius as well. Uh, now, we got you here to talk to you about uh, investing in commercial property, but to segue from the engineering and obviously your mathematical brain, um, anyone that's dealt with engineers knows that they, they are um, sticklers for detail to to a fault. I mean, let's be honest, uh, anyone that's worked with an engineer has probably beat their head against a concrete wall <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is it something that's um, that's useful to you as a, as a commercial buyer's agent in your analysis or your due diligence? Yeah, of course. But being a stickler for the numbers and research and data is always going to help. But funnily enough, we'll talk about this a little bit later, commercial, there actually is quite a big unknown as well because you've got to analyse businesses and competition and the economy and the market and what industry you're in and things like that. So there's also a level of unknown. But what I like is 80% of it is the numbers and you can present the numbers and that gets you kind of four-fifths of the way there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Now, let's get on to commercial property. One of the big things um, about commercial is it, it's so varied, right? When you, you compare it to residential property, um, commercial can mean a myriad of different things. What, what do you normally sort of define as commercial property when you're having these sort of onboarding calls with your clients that are saying, I want to get into commercial? Yep, okay. So commercial in simple terms is just any property where a business operates out of. So that, that can be a broad spectrum. It can be retail, it can be industrial, it can be office. It can actually be residential. So like you've, you've probably seen there's plenty of medical clinics that operate or dentists that operate out of a residential house. So even though that's bare bones, a residential property, it's actually a commercial premise as yeah. well. So it's just generally any property where a business is operating out of, the general difference is it's going to have a much higher cash flow than residential. So that that's normally why when people say I want to buy a commercial property, they're normally saying I want to buy something with high cash flow. Yeah, they're chasing the the yields, of course. Yeah. One 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 common thing that you hear investment specialists talk about is that commercial is is one of those things that you need a few runs on the board, a bit like investors wanting to go into say development. A lot of people will say, well, you you need to cut your teeth in resi, you need to build a little bit of a portfolio before you dive into the the townhouse development or or getting into commercial property is the same. Is that your view as well? Uh, gen generally not. It's it's going to be a case by case basis. It's going to depend. What, why are you buying the commercial, for instance? The yes, it's on on average you want someone to have some experience and like a, a lower risk portfolio, for instance. But if I've got I don't know, a sixty four year old client and he's about to retire and he's got a few million dollars worth of cash sitting there or super or things like that, buying a, a negatively geared or neutrally geared residential property is not the right solution. Mm. Whereas if you've got someone like a 22-year-old kid and he's going to be working the next 10 years, you want to use leveraging to your ability and you get higher LVRs with residential. So that would be the option. Yeah. But um, I've, got, I've got plenty of clients that like um, the, the guys who own, say, like um, construction companies or tradies and they run their own business where they might not be, you, you might, you'll probably see this as well, Mike, is they might not be claiming that they're earning much income, but they're actually quite cash rich. They, yeah. they might look at buying the commercial property as well because they just want to increase cash flow and they can get loans on 50% and 70% LVRs where their personal income isn't coming to play as much. So it's going to be case by case. But general mum and dad client uh, with no investments, I'd generally push them into residential first, at least for the first couple. But again, you need to assess why they're buying that property and what their risk profile is. 
Yeah. And we, we talked about people coming to you saying, I want to get into to commercial property. And I'm assuming that there's some some standard questions that they ask or, or just some p- perhaps pervasive misconceptions that are in the marketplace around commercial. What's, um, what, do you, what do you hear the most that you'd like to maybe sort of set the record straight on? Uh, yeah, this, this, is the, <laughs> this is the biggest pain in the bum that you always get with commercial. Uh, biggest ones probably they say commercial properties don't grow they only have cash flow um, and that's just because they hear residential people making that excuse but again like I said there's there's different types of commercial if I'm buying a residential property that's a dentist you can't tell me that the next door neighbor's prices are going to double and yours is going to sit there at the same price so there's there's more to it than that there's actually like how much land component they have versus the versatility how the economy is doing but just on average the the stuff that I look at has it um, in the last 30 years has had about a 4.2 to 6.4% average growth rate. So it's, it's not that far off residential. Like residential capital cities is about 5.2 to 6.4. Yep. Uh, but again, it just depends on the type. Uh, industrial warehouses have grown more than office spaces, but that's because they've got a significant land component. Whereas yes. an office that's, that, that's like comparing a, a high density apartment with a house saying that they're going to have the same growth rate. Um, they're, they're not. So people just say blanket statements like that. Um, it's the same as they say, like, oh, retail spending's down. Yeah, but that's if you're buying in a Westfields, for instance. If you're buying a, yeah. I don't know, a barber shop in suburbia, that, that's not down. They've actually gone up since COVID, for instance. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the biggest one is commercial properties don't grow. Um, they, they definitely do. If you, if you live in like Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, Go, go look at the prices of warehouses, for instance, 10 years ago and compare them to now, and they've pretty much doubled everywhere. That's really interesting, the, the, the land component. I mean, I guess that land could be repurposed, reused for, for, for other, other different things. So, in essence, it's, it's just you owning a parcel, whether it's commercial or resi, it's, it's likely to go up in value, right? And, and like, you, you hear the resi people say it all the time. They say, oh, the land's where it grows. The properties depreciate, the land grows. So why is that argument any different for commercial property? It's still mm. it's still land, it still grows. Uh, and then you've actually got, I'd actually argue you've actually got kind of more more demand for something like a commercial property because say you buy a block of, like, a, there's a warehouse in a little little kind of block of warehouses and it's surrounded by sub, like suburbia, so residential properties. It's generally not economical to buy out a hundred houses to build warehouses so you mm. get a level of demand for that and that gives you rental increases which in turn gives you property growth as well so it'll act in different cycles but it, you'll still you'll still get the capital growth oh i'm interested to to dive into that a little bit more in terms of what makes a commercial property grow in value like let's let's get away from the the ones with the high land component Let, let's say we're talking about a, a barber shop in suburbia that might not be a, a big parcel of land um, I'm assuming that rents can go up over time and then a valuer looks at it on a capitalization method and and sort of back calculates what the what the value would be but is it sort of supply and demand a little bit similar to residential i mean obviously there's not going to be a a huge supply of similar properties but there might be demand from other types of businesses to go into that that the supply is not meeting um help me out there yeah so it's it's similar concept to residential It, it is supply and demand but like you said there's not the same kind of supply that can come onto the market and then in turn with with demand you get rental increases and Commercials are typically valued off the rent that they receive. 
But then in addition to that, you can also have compression of the, the net yields and cap rates. So that just means the demand far out supplying the supply. And then that gives you compression as well. Then there's other moving parts as well, like obviously interest rates. So at the moment, we're seeing a huge spike in, in yields, oh, sorry, a huge a drop in yields because interest rates are dropping. Where I was buying three years ago at 4.5% interest rates, now you're getting commercial property loans at 2.6%, 2.8%. So wow. buying, buying the same property now on the same yield, you're actually getting better cash flow. So yeah. that's coming in. Um, what people don't talk about is the residential market also has a play as well. If you're in little suburban strip shop and all the houses in the area go from 1 million to 2 million, you're going to have some form of ripple effect there as well because just comparatively, people start looking to go, oh, do I buy a $2 million house or do I buy that $500,000 retail shop that's given me the better return? Mm. So you got that. The economy, um, wages obviously has a big part of it. Uh, there's just a lot more moving parts. The industry that you're in as well, so like uh, the different industries are going to act at different times. So there's a lot more moving parts. And this is what I mentioned before early in the conversation about that 20% of the kind of unknown. That's where you have to kind of, it's a little bit more of a black art where you're just going to do a bit of a thumb suck, try to get as many indicators as you can. And then that's the, the kind of sit and hope. Yeah, and there's some weird sort of um, nuances to it as well. Like we know when the the depreciation changes ha- happened in 2017 that got rid of the plant and equipment items for established resi, it didn't happen to, to commercial and we saw the numbers of people buying new properties increase. So there's there was an incentive to buy new and it's also incentivized commercial property as well perhaps by by accident so there's there's all sorts of weird perverted things that change the value proposition as well right yeah like one of the big ones is obviously covid so like this year prices have grown considerably for commercial we're talking 20 30 percent and one of the reasons i'm kind of theorizing that is last year during covid you had a lot of people sitting on their hands just doing the sit and wait they want to see what's kind of going on and then now all those people are looking at the residential properties grow and they're looking at the yields kind of going down, going like, oh, I don't really want to buy a, a Sydney house on a 3% gross yield when there's commercials in Sydney going for 5% net, 6% net. They start looking at that. So you've got an influx of a year's worth of people then jumping into the commercial market. But the problem with the commercial market at the moment is anyone who owns a commercial property when they bought it at a 7 8% yield kind of three, five years ago, why would they sell it? Because yeah. where, are they, where are they putting the money to get a better return? So there's actually about a third to a fifth less stock. So you've got two or three times more people looking for a fifth of the stock, and that's driving prices up. And no one would have predicted that happened because no one was really predicting COVID. So that's mm. kind of part. Then we've got the perfect concoction of like interest rates being super low as well. So they're jumping in on that. Um, then there's like the e-commerce boom, which I've, I've been predicting for quite a while because it's been around for some time. So industrial vacancy rates are tightening. Like Sydney, they're 1.2%. Brisbane, they're 1.8%. Melbourne, they're 1.6%. Like that's that's generally just as tight as residential. And, and actually, to go back to your question, that's actually another big misconception is people say, oh, don't buy commercial. The vacancy rates are really high. You'll sit there vacant for long periods of time, which they're right if you go and buy a bad property. And yep. the, most of the people saying that statement, they're talking about when they walk past a retail shop and they see it sitting there vacant for a couple of years and then they just yep. go, oh, yeah, I'm going to tarnish all commercial properties with that kind of brush. But like some, some areas I'm buying industrial in, you fill it within two or three months quite easily, which that, that sounds a lot to a residential investor because they're used to talking in two, three-week periods. But yeah, you also yeah. got to remember, on average, you're going to have that tenant for 5, 10, 15 years. So. Yes. Having three months of vacancy every five, 10 or 15 years, 
in the grand scheme of things, there's actually a better result than having a new tenant every two years and a two weeks vacancy on a residential. So they just throw a big blanket statement saying, oh, yeah, it's high vacancy. But I, you can buy high vacancy residential. Like I, I, I don't go out and buy in a mining town because the vacancy rates are too high, even though the return's mm. good. It's, a, it's the same thing. You, you can buy low risk. It's just people just tarnish the whole industry and it's just, there's so many moving parts to it. That's a really interesting point about um, you know that sounding like a big vacancy, but if if they're in there for three or five years, the numbers are the same. And, and normally, I would pull up an Excel spreadsheet just to to test you on that. But of course, there's no need with your mathematics expertise. Say say every two years, there's two weeks vacancy. Yeah. So every six years, that's six weeks. Every um, was uh, yeah. So every twelve, yeah. So it's exactly the same. So it's spot on. Yeah. So it's two two months for every ten years. So. Um, but you plan for that as well. So like when I've got a lease ending, um, I'm, I'm conservative. I have 12 months worth of uh, outgoings and interest repayments sitting there as cash. So that way I can handle that period. But I yeah. also know you, what you've got to take into account is, so we go out and buy a million dollar commercial property instead of a million dollar um, residential. That million dollar commercial is generally about, about a 50 grand passive income. Yep. So over five years, you've got 250 grand extra sitting there whereas the neutrally geared residential property you've got zero yes so it's a it's a lot easier to plan for these buffers and i i can actually argue that owning more commercial property can actually lower risk as well because you can have five properties all with different lease terms ending at different times so you can only have just like one buffer for multiple properties yep yeah, that's an interesting point as well. And and I wanted to touch on the real key differences and you've just uh, highlighted a, a good one there. We talked about, um, well, you mentioned before um, difference in, in rents. Let's say you're buying a $2 million place in Sydney and you've got a um, a, a gross yield of, of 1.8% or whatever, but you mentioned with commercial, the, the talk in net, that, that's one of the key differences for me. What, what sort of stands out for you as something that, that new investors really need to know as key differences between residential and commercial? Yeah, so like you just said, um, the key word net. So people people start going, oh, I'm buying a, a 4% yielding residential property and then they, say, they see 5% commercial and they go, oh, we're not that far off. Like you said, the, the net is different. On a residential, you're talking like 1.9, for instance. Commercial, it's net because the tenant pays the outgoings. Yep. So they'll pay council rates, water rates, maintenance, um, repairs, all that type of thing. So basically the rent you got coming in, the only outgoing you're going to have is whatever debt you have on that property. So that's yep. why you can go out and buy a 6 7% yielding million-dollar property. And even after interest repayments, you're talking about fifty grand a year passive income from, from the get-go. Mm. That's uh yeah I mean now now we're all very very interested if we weren't before right I mean the, the, w w it's a, that's a huge difference uh, and, th and the numbers don't match like you can't compare yields for residential on commercial because of that I mean that's a, that's a huge difference well you can compare them that is very 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 different is much higher on commercial and much lower on residential and then that's why people then make the argument you get more capital growth out of residential yeah. which you, you 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 can if you buy well. But same as commercial, you can get really good capital growth if you buy well as well. It just it just depends what you're buying. Mm. And with commercial, there's less of a need to to get that growth to make the numbers work. With res residential, you know, depending on the type, of course, but most of them really demand that there is that capital growth to make it worth your while investing in it in the first place, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So my, my my light bulb moment with commercial was when I worked out if you put say you buy a commercial property 
and it doesn't matter what price it is, it says a million dollars again, uh, on a 70% loan, on a 6 or 7% interest rate, I'm oh, sorry, 6 or 7% net yield, if you put the cash flow that you receive back into the debt, you actually pay off the debt in about 10 years. So mm. having a debt-free commercial property in 10 years is actually like having a residential property, a neutrally geared residential property that has to double just to remain on par. Mm. And that, that's what most people in Resi hope for. They want it to double every 7 to 11 years, the old 7-11 rule. Yep. Um, but you get that in quotations marks. Assuming you have no vacancy, you have that guaranteed just with cash flow. But then in addition to that, if the property's doubled as well, you win twofold. Yeah. So, so you can win on both fronts, but um, we, we can talk about the risks as well because it's not I'm, – I'm painting a very kind of pretty picture of commercial. You, you can also burn yourself. Yeah, well, hey, don't give away my interview strategy. I'm lifting everyone <laughs> up and I'm about to give them the hammer of Thor. Um, as a side note, I've seen some of your analysis on uh, one of the Facebook groups. I'm not even sure which one it would be. There's there's a lot out there these days, but there, it might have been commercial property uh, investing thing. And that those are very interesting things and they're very, um, very attractive to, to look at. And, of course, um, now, knowing more about your mathematical skills, then uh, they're, they're a bit uh, a bit more beyond reproach as well. Let's um yeah, let's tackle the negatives because um, we do hear about these extreme periods of of vacancy, and everyone's got that stereotypical image of the the tumbleweedy street with the sort of smashed window facade of the vacant. Uh, commercial properties, there are definitely risks involved. Let, let's talk about some of the negatives and, and some of the ways that people can get unstuck. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yep. All right. So pretty much I know I was talking about how vacancy is the main one and that, that is the main one. So that's, that's the main difference between residential and commercial. If you don't know what you're doing residential, and as long as you, you don't do something really silly, like you don't buy in a flood zone or a termite-ridden house, for instance, and you buy in an okay suburb, you're generally going to be okay financially because you'll, you'll have tenants. You might have some high vacancy, like where, like we said, two weeks every year you lose a tenant and things, but it's, not gonna, it's generally not going to financially cripple you because it's just the difference in the mortgage and the repayments and it's neutrally geared. There's no, no skin off your back. But if you don't know what you're doing with commercial and you go out and you buy a bad one and you do buy one of those ones that sits there vacant for two or three years, then you have to handle the whole mortgage by yourself. And a vacant property is generally worth about 20 or 30% less than a tenanted one as well, which is interesting. Right. So you've lost equity and you've got to handle a mortgage. So that is a lot harder to kind of pill to swallow. So you don't you don't take commercial kind of lightly and just jump in thinking oh high cash flow I'm going to be all right. There's there's a lot more work to do and then that that's generally how you have to mitigate it as well. Is residential yeah once you've chosen your suburb you can kind of do some spot checks and like I said you'll be okay. Commercial sometimes I spend two to five days worth of due diligence on a property before even putting an offer in, and then after that you might spend another few days doing checks as well. So there's a lot more much more work to mitigate that risk and. Just analysing the data is harder as well. You, like for the vacancy one, for instance, you can't just go on a website and look in vacancy rates of that suburb. 
Like that, that doesn't exist for commercial. You yeah. can get some general stats about the whole city and things like that off like Knight Frank and CBRE and things like that. But there's still, in a good city, there's still really bad suburbs and really bad properties and there's really good ones. So you need to analyze the data. So just for, for vacancy, I'll generally go on like a core logic. And if I'm buying, say, a warehouse, I will click through every other warehouse in that complex and the adjoining complexes and look at how long their sales campaigns were for leasing that property out and then collect that data and try to work out a vacancy rate. Then I'll also speak to a few property managers on the ground and get their gut feel about how the market's going and things like that because different times of year have a play. At the moment, some areas are so tight, you're filling them in kind of two weeks and they've got waiting lists. Um, So it's a a lot harder. It's it's, it's more more time intensive to get that data as opposed to just go out and buy something. So that's, that's the main risk with commercial view. Don't do the work and it sits there vacant for a long period of time. You're going to basically halt your investing and basically burn yourself a little bit financially until you get it for tenanted. Yeah, that, that's that's some really sound advice. And and you know we we might have sounded a little bit bullish on on commercial, um, but I mean that was those were the questions that I was asking you, right? But there are some significant risks, and and I encourage um, residential property investors to lean on experts like buyers agents. But I think with commercial property, it's it's maybe less of a of a of a suggestion and more of an Im- imperative because it is so difficult to do it yourself unless you are in the game and in the industry, right? Yeah, and different commercials, like I keep talking industrial because it's a bit easier to give general numbers because you do have comparables and things like that. But like say we're buying the little suburban strip of shops and we're buying one of them like the the hairdresser and there's 10 shops. If there hasn't been a vacancy there in two or three years, how do you actually know what the vacancy period is? Like Mm. that one's a much bigger thumb suck of, oh yeah, it should be right. You might find one from three or four years ago and it might have been vacant for six months or 12 months. But are we in that same kind of time frame? Is it going to be the same vacancy? Then you have to look at like the population growth to see if there's demand. Then check stuff like future developments. Make sure they're not building another strip of shops around the corner from yours because that could harm your business. So there's that type of thing. Some, some retail strip shops buying at the end, for instance, they actually pay less rent and have higher vacancy periods than the middle because people are lazy with the foot traffic and they don't walk all the way to the end. They congregate <laughs> in the middle right. kind of two-thirds. So there's that. And then there's if you're buying in a holiday destination, it's going to be seasonal, different times of day. Retail, you can't. You have to choose main street comparables. You can't go one street back and actually compare that with the main street. They're going to have different, completely different vacancy periods, rental returns and things like that. So that one is a much bigger kind of, much harder one to analyse. And you, you really have to understand that market. It's not, not as simple as industrial where you can kind of analyse the numbers a bit better. This is really where the engineering degree is paying for itself for you. I can just, <laughs> I can just tell. I can just tell. Um, wh- one thing that's always struck me about it uh, as a difference between commercial and residential, you, you think about um, the essence of residential is is accommodation. It's a roof over people's heads e- every day. Someone needs to go to bed somewhere and and hopefully not get rained on. With commercial property, it's not actually that simple because uh, things change. Like we've seen the death of the bricks and mortar store in in different industries and sectors. We've got Amazon uh, parachuting packages through the house with 
drones and all that sort of stuff. Is that something that you have to be acutely aware of as well as like what is recession proof? Because I'm guessing like the reason why I know medical um, developments have gone up crazy in values because they've shown their recession proofness in a in a pandemic how much of that plays into your thinking yeah so you, you do have to kind of a bit more forward thinking uh, but people will say i oh, residential is a necessity for life yep agree but so are warehouses like how do the, how do people think they get all their household items and like fabricated delivered things like that like everything around us sitting right now is made and sent out from a warehouse typically so yeah. that's that one I would argue is long-term pandemic-proof. Um, different industries are going to be different as well. Like I generally won't buy things like um, banks because banks are reducing their floor traffic. Like I, I haven't been walked into a bank for about five, ten years, so they're they're disappearing. I, I don't buy petrol stations, even though they're a high yield because of environmental factors. And I don't know how electric cars are going to act in the next kind of five, ten years, and they might be a dying industry as well. Funny enough, with the medical one, I actually I actually argue with that as well. Is yep, they're being pandemic proof now, but with technology and self diagnosis and cheap machines and things like that coming out, I don't think medical is going to be the same as well. Like I I don't think we're going to need the same kind of big floor space and face to face. There there might be much more telehealth and things like that, and it might shift and change. So you've got to be aware of things like that. Um, offices, we're very aware that that game's changing in the next five years because of COVID and there's going to be an oversupply and a shift to like the hub and spoke model, for instance. Um, but that's also why I like warehouse because warehouses for me are bare bones floor space that's used just to distribute goods, fabricate goods, storage. Uh, it can also be service based, like it could be like a car mechanic or a fabricator or spray painter, whatever it might be. So they've got versatility. That's effectively usable space in residential areas that we can kind of use the other ones are, are much harder to forecast and you want to just make sure you kind of get the longevity out of the tenants mm. yeah that's a good point and i assume there's more demand for for warehouses because we're buying we're buying more stuff especially since we can't go on holidays we're on ebay getting all sorts of we're, we're also, like yeah we're also getting more impatient as well so companies have to deliver in 24 48 hours so they're opening up a little kind of a lot of little kind of hubs around locations where they'll have stuff sitting there so they can get it to you within 24 hours. So vacancy rates because of the e-commerce boom are just tightening like nothing else. They were about 3% five years ago and now they're sub twos. So it's just um, that, that space thing. But they come in waves. All commercial sectors act in different kind of cycles as well. So industrial, whenever there's a really huge demand for something, guess what governments start doing? They start building more of them. Yep. So then, then there'll be a supply. Then that'll stagnate for five, ten years. It's it's much like residential. You have the supply and demand, and then the infrastructure will go to back it, and it'll come in waves and things like that. And oh, potentially we might start looking like maybe in a structural engineer. I'm charted in structural. It's very hard to build a multi-story warehouse just from floor loading. It's just yep. not economical. But if populations keep growing, they keep throwing up apartments everywhere, and there's demand for that. That might be the next thing as well. So once they start doing that, there might be an oversupply or a lot of the fringe areas, they might doing it. But even COVID is going to change where people live. Like I've got quite a lot of people migrating to more lifestyle regions. So those areas will boom and then the CBD ones will kind of stay flat for five, 10 years. So there's a lot more moving parts. But just generally, I try to just tick all the usual fundamental boxes and keep it long-term mindset and then you'll generally be okay. How, how much does the, the location 
uh, dictate the movements as well. I'm just interested in, in how how you can sort of help us to spot the performing markets and what do they look like in various sectors. What what do you point to to say warehouses are booming in in uh, Gympie? Yeah, so vacancy rates is obviously the the first one you're going to look at. And like I said, it's not as simple as just looking up on a website. You actually have to sit there and going through. And then most of the time, I'll actually I won't do it proactively. I'll do it reactively. I'll find a property. And if I've never bought in that suburb before, then I go down the rabbit hole of having a look at what the vacancy periods are. And then if you find a suburb where warehouse vacancy periods are, say, two months on average, you know that's a very tightly held area. And then if you then check future developments and they're not building anything for the next five to 10 years that's going to compete with you and that population's growing, that's a pretty strong indicator that you're going to be okay and have the tenant for the next five, 10 years until there's a bit of a kind of a bit of a like demographic shift or population shift or something like that. So mm. that, that, that's the main one. And then, then you look at the, it's not, it's not just as simple as that. You'll also need to look at what type of area that's servicing as well, because that's going to have an impact because like some of the suburban warehouse complexes, they will be service based. So they're, they're going to be the, the fabricators and the, like the kitchen cabinet makers and panel beaters and stuff like that. The ones yep. in the, say the ones near the ports or airports, they're going to be more distribution based. So yep. those ones are going to be more into like basically, I say, international type kind of distribution or across Australia transport. So that's going to have a slightly different cycle and impact on the long-term longevity of it. So it, it's just going to be case by case. You need to look at each scenario, what area you're servicing. Different size warehouses, for instance, are going to have a different kind of demand as well. So like some areas, the really small ones, have a tighter vacancy rate than the long ones, uh, so than the large ones. Yeah. But the large ones have a longer tenant. So like a large, a large warehouse might have 20, 30 employees. They'll sign a five, 10-year lease, and yeah. you'll probably have them for 20 years, whereas the little 200-square-meter warehouse is probably like Joe's Electrical Services, and that you might, you might lose your tenant every five years because small businesses are going to go one or two ways. They, they'll rent out space. If the better business you buy, probably the quicker they're going to leave because guess what small businesses do? Yeah. They, they, yeah. they grow and they outgrow the space. Or alternatively, he flounders about for five years and close up shop. So those ones you'll have shorter leases. You'll be on a one-by-one one or two-by-two two and they'll leave every five to seven years. But the vacancy periods are like three months because there's a lot of sole traders willing to jump on that space. Yeah. And then, like I said, conversely, you've got the big ones where you'll have a long lease, but if you lose a big tenant, there's not a hundred big companies just sitting there twiddling their thumbs waiting for a space. That one might have a 12 or 24 month vacancy period. But when you get the tenant, you know they're not going anywhere because they're going in and fitting it out with a million dollars worth of stuff and they've got the 20, 30 employees and they'll rent out a space with 30, 40% extra capacity for their growth as well because they don't want to move. Yes. So you've got to analyze what you're buying and the size of it what areas it's distributing to or servicing. And uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot to it. And like I said, this, this is where people get unstuck with commercial. They think it's just, oh, cool, there's a tenant in there on a five-year lease paying this rent. I'll be fine. No, you, you have to do all this work if you want that long-term success. Mm. Yeah, that that's that's a really interesting point, especially about the the, the size difference. There's a, there's a lot to sort of unpack in that. I'm interested in the in the timing you you referenced earlier, talking about you know perhaps a person with cash that's nearing retirement, high yielding commercial is is good for you. Are there obvious times where commercial sort of fits within the needs of that individual or or the portfolio? Is it is it a timing play for for most people? 
Not, not necessarily timing. Sometimes it's a serviceability play. So some people know that they're at the kind of glass ceiling in terms of their lending, as, as you know, and mm-hmm. they can't get a loan anymore with residential just because they're too negatively geared or they, like the bank's criteria are putting them in the red zone. So then they might actually start to look at buying a commercial, one, to increase their serviceability, um, or there's actually loan options that you can get with commercial that you can't get for residential because you can get things like lease loans where they'll give you the loan based predominantly on the strength of the lease. So if it's got like a five-year lease, you'll get a five-year loan with that bank. So it means you can keep progressing your portfolio that way. But most people that start buying them are looking to get that passive income. So they're they're sick. There's no point having – they want to get out of work in five years' time. Buying 10 properties at all neutrally geared doesn't help them get there that quickly. It it will help them in five, ten years because they'll get the growth and the rental increases. But commercial just gives you that little kind of kick right now to move into the the passive income realm. Yeah, awesome. Now I'm interested in in sort of investing and and your driver. You talked about you know, people chasing uh, passive income. Uh, this is a, a podcast, of course, so we're not seeing audio. But I am looking at you, and you've got a <laughs> glorious beard. Uh, <laughs> you're in a t-shirt. You, you've talked about. Um, I sent you a little questionnaire, and you talked about faffing about in your camper van. So, like, what's what's the driver for you? Is it is it the cash flow and the are you, you treating sort of money like freedom tickets? Yeah, so this is just me personally. Like, I'm, I'm never going to be the guy that has a, a private yacht or lives in a $3 million house or things like that. I, I don't get any more enjoyment out of that. Like, I, I remember when I started, when I grew my residential portfolio, and I think I was like, I got up to like eight properties early on pretty quickly. I was no happier by having those properties. Yeah. But what I found was once I started buying some cash flow properties, and at, at the time it wasn't commercial, it was just like those kind of high-yielding regional towns and things like that. I actually found I enjoyed work more as well because going in knowing that you don't have to be there, it's it's a little bit of a different mindset. Like I'd, I'd have my boss and he'd say, oh, Steve, can you do this for me? And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm not don't really keen on doing that. And you kind of see him go, oh, all right. And then he'd go ask someone else. There, there, would be <laughs> no, there would be no way I would have done that if I didn't have a passive income behind me. So it just, it just, it just changes your mindset. And I, I'm, I, yeah, cause I'm not going to probably keep buying until I'm 65. I'm, I'll probably just tick away and I'll probably do more purchases for interest as opposed to getting the, the cash flow. Yeah. Um, and it'll just be kind of little passion projects. Like I want to do a commercial development, for instance, just to increase my knowledge there. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll never spend silly money on a car. For instance, I know you're into your cars, so no offense, Mike, but I'll never spend <laughs> money on a, a fancy car or anything like that. I, I, I get my enjoyment from hanging out with friends, traveling, rock climbing, all, all stuff that doesn't cost exorbitant amount of money. Yeah, no, that's cool, and and I'm I'm the same. I mean, I, I do have a nice car. It is 11 years old, and it's a lot cheaper than it looks. I'll, <laughs> I'll never buy an expensive one uh, either. But everything that I own is is kind of decrepit and oh, falling apart. He, he, yeah, and I, I think me becoming a buyer's agent six years ago has kind of opened my eyes a little bit as well. Because all my really wealthy clients, most of them aren't happy. They, most of them are actually miserable. And then even like even cars. They'll go out and they'll go buy a 200 grand car. And they, they all tell me after two or three months, they're kind of like, nah, probably shouldn't have bought that. Like, kind of lost a bit of a flair. So, yeah, um, yeah my, my happiest clients were actually my mum and dad ones where they're like, they'll buy a new fishing reel, for instance, and they'll be over the moon. So, yeah. it's, it, it's, all, it's all relative. And it, it, what, you just got to find what you enjoy doing. Like, some people, they get a huge kick out of having huge incomes, fancy cars, yachts, watches, and all that type of stuff. Uh, but yeah, just just work out what actually makes you happy, and then make your plan around that. 
I love that. That's very refreshing to to hear. And uh, yeah, you're a man after my own heart. Although I'm pretty terrible at rock climbing and uh, can't grow a beard. <laughs> um, I want to ask you. There's a story going around about a Cairns apartment, and I can remember being in Cairns when I first sort of started in the in the in the property game. Um, and went on holidays to Cairns and I had my RP data account and I thought, I wonder what these things are worth. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I can afford to buy a couple of these. They're worth nothing and surely they're going to soar in value. I'm, I'm wondering, did you have a similar sort of thought yourself? Yeah, so when I was probably property number four at the time. Um, I, that's when I started going cash flow because I was like, oh, I want to get a passive income here. Let's, let's buy some cash flow properties. So I found a one-bedroom apartment in, in Cairns um, it was $30,000. Wow. How so could you this, fail? Well, that's exactly what I thought. But I, I, it was probably my best purchase and my worst purchase at the same time. So the, the best purchase was obviously because it was just a bargain. Like that rented for $180 a week. Wow. So with, even with the body corporate, I think it was about 55 bucks a week. You're, you're still kind of 120 130 bucks a week positive. Yep. So you're like, right, this, is, this is just a game changer kind of thing. But the banks wouldn't lend to it, though. It was under the square meter size right. rate. So I had to put cash into that. So I ended up putting like 35, 36 grand cash into it because by the time I paid like the purchasing costs and stamp duties and whatnot, yep. and I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and then in terms of like maintenance and tenant turnover, I had, I had a tenant that was assaulted by a neighbor there, so I had to pay for his accommodation for a few weeks. And then Gosh. I went through a new tenant just because it was obviously pretty decrepit and not a, a nice kind of complex to be in. Every six to 12 months, I'd have a new vacancy and it'd probably be two or three months vacancy. So even though on paper it looked really good, the net result wasn't as good as it kind of should have been. But the reason why it's the worst purchase for me is I bought it at the wrong time. Right. So I, I was still in the accumulation phase in my portfolio and putting 35 grand into that property where even if the property doubles, you make 30 grand. Yep. I should have put that 35,000 into say, like another Blacktown one, for instance. Where yep. something where I could leverage, so get a get a eighty five or ninety percent loan and buy something worth two hundred three hundred. If that property doubles, I've made two hundred three hundred grand. Yeah, yeah. So you're never going to have that same outcome. And I, I sold that three years later for eighty five grand. So not a bad result, but at the time when I bought it in two thousand and thirteen, two thousand fourteen, I think it was. Um, if I bought say another Western Sydney property, I would have I would have had an extra hundred hundred fifty grand over those few years. Mm, so it's just it in perspective, wrong, doesn't it? Yeah. So it was the wrong, right, right property, just wrong time in the portfolio. Like now, something like that would make sense to me. I'd look at it and go, oh, yeah, a little cash cow might might take that risk. Um, but again, I'm I'm not. A, I've shifted my mindset. I, I wouldn't buy an apartment anymore. I, I like things with the land component because then you at least got that scarcity factor behind you. Yeah, that's awesome. That's and that's a that's a really interesting point about I guess the the opportunity cost of of that sort of thing as well. Steve, what's um What's the best way for people to get in touch with you or to, to follow your stuff? Um, just do what you did, Mike. Probably stalk me on social media. So you <laughs> just type in Steve Polisi or if you want to go to my website, www.policyproperty.com. Um, I've got a book out as well at the moment, so you can probably you can buy a book there. Um, if any of your listeners want 50% off, just use code word 50 on my site and I'll, I'll flick you out a book. Beautiful. Uh, but, yeah, just, just just reach out by email, phone. You'll, you'll find me I'm, I'm all over the place on social media. So just, just send me a message and we can have a chat. 
Awesome. And I highly recommend the book. It was remiss of me to have not mentioned it already, but it is in all of your all all good bookshops. And as Sean McAuliffe says, even that really awful one in Launceston. Um, (laughs) Steve, um, I've personally learned a lot. I'm I'm sure that the people listening have got a lot out of it as as well. But if there's one um, piece of advice that you can sort of leave us with, what what would you pick? Four, okay. Um, For commercial property, if you're starting out in it, just keep it simple. The the biggest mistake I see people make is they chase unicorns. They're chasing these stupidly high yields and trying to get too creative too quick. Simple is a much much better return if you don't stuff it. So just just use the kiss method. Just just keep it simple. I love it. Awesome. Thanks very much for for coming on today, Steve. It's been it's been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Mike. Cheers.